0: Paying too much for health insurance? Frustrated by high deductibles, network restrictions, and increasing premiums? There's a better way. Christian Healthcare Ministries. CHM is a Christian community delivering a robust, faith-based solution to the high cost of healthcare. If your current health insurance has become more of a racket than a remedy, take back control of your healthcare at around half the price. Learn more and enroll today at chministries.org. That's chministries.org
1: i'm greg gutfeld
2: i'm martha
3: mccallum i'm brett bear and this is the fox
2: news rundown friday december
4: 1st 2023 i'm chris foster New York House Republican George Santos says kicking him out of Congress goes against innocent until proven guilty.
3: You do increasingly have Republicans coming forward to say, yes, I believe in due process, but I've seen so much from the ethics report and their opinion. That's enough.
4: We're Speaking with Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream. And Lisa Brady.
2: Some of this year's holiday shoppers might still be paying for last year's gifts with credit card debt at a record high.
1: I think right now. A lot of people feel like maybe they're treading water or falling a little bit behind, but they are still paying their bills back, which is why credit card lenders are still issuing credit pretty freely.
0: And I'm Jason Chaffetz. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown.
4: Mike Johnson's been Speaker of the House for five weeks now, maybe enjoying some parts of the job, like presiding over the Capitol Christmas tree lighting. The tree is truly the people's tree. It, of course, represents also a great American tradition. It also signifies, of course, the beginning of this season of Christmas and the birth of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Even there, there were protesters calling for an Israeli ceasefire in Gaza. And like his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, he's got members of his own party breathing down his neck about spending cuts and... Other issues being attached to spending bills to fund the federal government.
3: He does. And, and listen, he got through the Band-Aid that they needed for funding, but it just kicks all of these problems into January and February.
4: Fox News Sunday and Living the Bream podcast host Shannon Bream.
3: Because we know, unless there's some massive breakthrough of Kumbaya... They've got major disagreements about all kinds of things. They have to get the defense authorization bill done before the end of the year. So that's going to be a very heavy lift. A lot of his people within the GOP caucus on all different spectrums within that have said, We want to give this guy a chance. It was not a good look for us to go weeks without a speaker and to have all these failed votes. So we're going to give him some time. We think he's a serious guy. We don't have to agree on everything, but I think he wants to move things forward. So he's got plenty of critics out there who like some things he's doing and not others within the caucus, but he's got very heavy lifting to do very soon.
4: I mean, he didn't take up any funding bills this week. He says he'll work with Mm -hmm. Democrats on another extension, if need be, to avoid a government shutdown. Those are the exact same things that got Kevin McCarthy kicked out, but- but like you said, maybe he gets, uh, you know, a little bit longer. I mean, Kevin McCarthy had what a nine-month runway, 10-month runway. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe Mike Johnson gets, you know, the same.
3: Maybe he gets uh, 10, 11 months. Right. I mean, who, who knows? And you know it's going to be extra pressure in an election year, too, because the GOP has such a tiny majority in the House, and there's going to be a lot of fundraising pressure, campaigning pressure, all kinds of other things he's going to have to do besides try to help govern the House.
4: Yeah. And can he do that? He doesn't come from a really big national profile. Kevin McCarthy was known. uh, He was a pretty prodigious fundraiser. Um, Mm -hmm. Can Mike Johnson pick up that ball and run with it? Or is Kevin McCarthy just going to keep doing it behind the scenes?
3: Well, you know, there's a lot of speculation about what Kevin McCarthy is going to keep doing or not keep doing. But he has been. Yes, continuing to work on the fundraising. Um, You've got Richard Hudson, who is heading up a lot of these efforts in the House as well. um, And Republican leadership for the campaigns and that kind of thing. He feels good about where they're at. He keeps touting that once they locked Johnson in and people had somebody rally behind, that they have had some decent fundraising. So all of that is going to have to continue against this backdrop of the government needing some fundraising, apparently, too.
4: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, Speaking of that slim Republican majority in the House, it looks like there's a vote today on expelling George Santos. Now, even some people who don't like him say it's just look, it's a dangerous precedent to expel somebody who's not even convicted of a crime. And like you said, the Republicans have to worry about its House majority getting even slimmer with Santos gone.
0: This will haunt them in the future where mere allegations are sufficient to have members removed from office when duly elected by their people.
4: Um, Are people is this personal? It's just like people just don't like this guy.
3: He's been difficult for the GOP from the start because they had in some ways to defend him or to. Defend the reasons why they didn't immediately start a process to let him go. And, and the funny thing is, this is playing against the contrast of what's happening over in the Senate, where you've got Senator Bob Menendez also facing an oncoming trial. You've had a ton of Democrats call for his um resignation, saying he's got to go for all kinds of political reasons. And yet in the Senate Ethics Committee, we don't know if there is any investigation going on. You've got Republicans and others, some on the House side saying. Listen, Democrats would not do this to one of their own. They would just close ranks and say we're going to keep them cuz our our majority is too tight we can't do it. Um so there's such an interesting contrast between how this is playing out in the House and the Senate, but you do increasingly have Republicans coming forward to say, "Yes, I believe in due process, but I've seen so much from the ethics report and their opinion that's enough." And they're like, "Listen, if we want to have the moral high ground, Based on what we've uncovered just in the ethics investigation, I think it's time for us to say this is going to be painful for us, but we mean it when we talk about integrity and I'm going to vote to boot the guy.
4: Now, if Santos is gone, um, here's what happens. He, uh, the governor, Kathy Hochul, a Democrat in New York, uh, she doesn't get to just um, appoint somebody. She has to call right. a special election within 10 days. The election would have to be held within 70 or 80 days of it being called. Now, and there's also no primary. So basically, the local county party bosses somehow get together and, and, and put up their own candidates. Um, Biden won that district by 10 points. So it's by no means certain that a Republican holds it if it becomes vacant.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is a very tricky one because um, you remember Republicans had some good wins in New York, some a little bit of surprise. They did better than expected on some of these House seats. A lot of people think that's because Elise Stefanik is just a, like a relentless fundraiser and campaigner more broadly for the House Republicans, but really in New York, there's a big investment in making that happen. But yeah, there's zero guarantee that this is something that is going to stay Republican with Santos he is ultimately expelled. Um, and they have that special election. So Republicans feel good about it because they think, listen, the economy is bad right now. Um, you know, people are ready for a fresh start. But in a lot of these special elections and different places where people have been able to Democrats, the issue of abortion, even if it's not on the ticket. Listen, I live in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and the entire state legislature was up for election um, a few weeks ago. And even though there was not an abortion measure on the Virginia ballot... Every ad I saw for every state and House seat, um, Senate and House seat, was the the entire ad was about abortion. So, you know, that kind of thing is going to happen with this special election in New York, too. Is that enough for Democrats to rally? It's been very good for them uh, as an issue, even if it's not on the ballot, having candidates talk about it. Or will Republicans be able to say, um, listen, the economy is a disaster. The polling shows that people aren't feeling good about it, regardless of party. Um, that's the stronger argument. It's almost a test for 24.
4: Yeah. Around three dozen members of Congress have said, forget it, I'm not running for re-election in 24. Mm-hmm. Now, do you know or know of members of Congress who got into politics and say, look, I got into this for the right reasons, but I just can't take it. The chaos and the division is mm-hmm. just too much. And um, I think we've talked about this before, but do good candidates and good p- potentially public servants d- just get turned off by all this?
3: Well, one of the most prominent people years ago who did this to the consternation of his party was Trey Gowdy, um, who's now with us on Fox News, and he was somebody who was seen as a straight shooter, very effective on the Hill, you know, chairing committees and doing his thing. And then he was like, "I'm out. This place is crazy town, and you can't get anything done, and it is just ripping people apart." And he. You know, a lot of people thought he had a huge political future if he wanted to stay in whatever he wanted to do. And he was like, no, Washington is dysfunctional. I'm out of here. And had a lot of people try to talk him out of it. But I think he was kind of maybe a canary in the coal mine for a lot of these folks who in the ensuing years are saying, yeah, this is really bad. I mean, the last Gallup polling on Congress, their approval was what, 13 percent. It's near a record low. Um, that makes it hard. I mean, if you come here, even with the best intentions, right, left or center, and you realize you cannot move the ball on things that are important, think about immigration and how broken everybody admits it is. And nobody gets anything done, regardless of whether Democrats or Republicans are in charge. So that's just one of those issues that illustrates. That I think a lot of these people think. Yeah, if I could go be the president of a college or, you know, spend more time with my family or do something instead of just sitting here grinding my wheels and, you know, wanting to punch people in the face that maybe it's time for me to go.
4: Yeah, that's Trey Gowdy he wants something to the effect of uh, if you had it to do over, would you have run for Congress? And he basically said it's a moot point because he wouldn't have won a primary now mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. because he's good point, you know, Um and this is maybe discussion for another time that's a little weedy, but there are people that say the gerrymandering of these districts to make them even yeah. more Republican, even more Democrat, just pushes the nominees further to the left and further to the right since the districts are so
0: safe.
3: You know, it's a big gamble when you think about doing that kind of stuff long term, because it may benefit your party now. It may hurt your party when somebody else is in charge. But they, you're right. It seems like they're more willing to do it. And it almost feels like it's just making red states redder. Blue states, bluer, the same thing with the districts, as you're pointing out. And so, yeah, it's going to encourage a different kind of primary when um, people feel like they're going to have to be, you know, either far right or far left of center in order to win the district as a whole. Uh,
4: Henry Kissinger, changing gears, uh, has has left us. He was 100 years old, leaves behind a complicated legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, undoubtedly, though, one of the most influential American diplomats ever. Um, and he made no apologies for his decisions. Um, what are people saying about him?
3: Man, it's so interesting because you go back and start to remember his legacy and really read through the details of his advice and his positions through the Ford and Nixon years and from Vietnam to China. I mean, so many big world issues that were going on. This was a guy in the middle of it. He was, I think, the only person at the White House to be both national security advisor and secretary of the state at the same time. So while he's known for those administrations and there were others, um, some conservatives, I mean, he took heat from conservatives and um, liberals on all kinds of different things. But he continued to advise presidents well beyond those years and was just, I mean, a Nobel Prize winner, somebody who was involved in foreign policy at every level. In it's hard to imagine many American leaders who've had more influence outside of the White House. Um, than he did over the last, you know, 50, 75 years of American foreign policy.
4: Yeah. Current foreign policy, um, Israel is looming large still. President Biden, how much influence does he and the administration have, do you think, in shaping what Israel does in this war with Hamas and maybe beyond when it comes to the administration of Gaza, if and when Hamas falls? Israel has said, this is our fight. We're going alone. Mm -hmm. Um, But there has to be some stuff going on behind the scenes to— to lead to these ceasefires, for example.
3: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I thought it was interesting. The White House came out this week and said there's a lot of pressure on the Hill from people like Senator Bernie Sanders. We're not going to give more military aid to Israel without conditions. We can't give a blank check is what he said. No more blank checks. But there are others up there who say, listen, Israel is in an existential fight for its life. And this is not a time for us to be playing politics or playing games with this aid. So the White House comes out and says, we're not going to condition military aid to Israel. So publicly, that's a really strong signal of support, obviously. And they keep saying, you know, Israel has the right and the duty and responsibility to defend itself. And we are with them. But it is clear that as more and more folks on the left, especially younger people, but the more progressive folks in the party are not happy with the president and saying things like, we're going to remember this next year and our districts that – um do have you know heavy populations of you know palestinian americans and that kind of thing this is going to cost you next year you know he's clearly trying to say things that are supportive of israel but also um a bit of a warning I-, I feel like every press release we've gotten from the white house um since october 7th almost not maybe the first couple but many many after that have included this language we encourage israel to, to stand by international law we encourage them not to react in anger. And you've heard, you know, Israeli officials come out and say, like, we would never uh, who would have said that to the Americans after 9-11, like, be careful on how you go after the terrorists, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really difficult for the White House to thread this needle. I think it's fair to say they're firmly behind Israel 100 percent. But that doesn't mean, um, as you're suggesting, that there aren't conversations behind closed doors. We know that are happening um, about um, cautioning them.
4: Shannon Bream, you can see her on Fox News Sunday and hear her on her Living the Bream podcast. Shannon, thanks.
3: Thanks, Chris.
2: I'm Benjamin Hall, Fox News correspondent and New York Times bestselling author. Join me for my brand new podcast, Searching for Heroes, launching December the 4th. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. This is
0: Jason Chaffetz with your Fox News commentary coming up.
2: There's been better news lately on inflation, but for many Americans, the cooling trend isn't making a dent. Well,
0: something done about the economy. Yes, you know, groceries shouldn't cost more than rent.
2: Still, the holiday shopping season appears to be off to a solid start.
0: I have a seven-year-old daughter, so the entire list is her, and she's come up with the list and she wrote a letter to
2: Sansa. The National Retail Federation reports a record number of shoppers between Thanksgiving Day and Cyber Monday, though they spent a little less on average than last year, $321 in change versus 325. And while some shoppers are careful not to overspend... I want to pay, like with a debit card, only the money I have. Others are ready to accumulate more debt, at least temporarily. On Cyber Monday alone, a 42% jump in online spending using buy now, pay later plans.
1: Unfortunately, Americans have a record amount of credit card debt, $1.08 trillion, according to the New York Fed.
2: Ted Rossman is a senior industry analyst at Bankrate.
1: What's really notable is that that has jumped 40% just since the beginning of 2021. So there was this phenomenon early in the pandemic. A lot of people paid down debt. Those balances fell 17% at first, and now they've rocketed upward. So more people are carrying more debt for more time, unfortunately. We see 47% of credit card holders carry debt from month to month. 60% 60% of them have had it for at least a year. So all these figures are moving in the wrong direction, unfortunately.
2: Hmm. Is that different than in past years, you know, carrying all of that debt from month to month?
1: It's gotten worse. Two years ago, 39% of credit card holders carried debt from month to month. Now it's 47 And two years ago, 50% of people with credit card debt had had it for at least a year. Now it's 60 I think that speaks to the cumulative effect of high inflation and higher interest rates are a big part of the story, too. The Fed has pushed rates higher by five and a quarter percentage points since the beginning of last year, and that directly passes through to most credit card borrowers.
2: Wow. So it's it's like a chain reaction. You have, you have a hard time making ends meet as prices for everything went up. And so maybe then more people started turning to credit cards. And now those bills are costing more because of the higher interest rates to fight inflation, right?
1: That's right. To be fair, it's not all bad. You know, there are some silver linings. One would be that this trillion dollar plus figure, that's balances. That doesn't distinguish between what's paid in full and what's not. There are about half of cardholders who are paying in full every month. They're getting rewards and buyer protections. That's clearly the scenario you want to be in, if at all possible. The other thing is that even though delinquencies have gone up, they're still pretty low, historically speaking. And same thing for the debt to income ratio. That's actually looking pretty low compared to the recent past. So those are a couple of silver linings. But as they say, all news is local. You know, for every person who's Using credit cards and earning cash back and getting free trips and not paying interest, there's somebody else who may be stuck in a really persistent cycle of debt. So it it really does play out differently at the household level.
2: Where could this lead for the overall economy? Is it unsustainable and dangerous if people hit a wall where they just can't afford their credit card bills anymore?
1: I think the job market's the biggest indicator. It's more of a lagging indicator than a leading one, but Employment status is really the number one predictor of whether or not somebody's able to keep up with the bills. And there are so many contradictions in the economy right now. On the plus side, the job market's doing well. The 3.9% unemployment rate is one of the lowest in 50 years. The flip side of that, though, is high inflation and high interest rates and very low consumer sentiment. If you ask people how the economy's doing, about 8 in 10 say poor or fair, according to Pew research. So there is some sort of perception versus reality thing going on here. Big picture, people are keeping up with the bills. I think the credit industry has actually had a great year because this is a very profitable situation for them if they're charging higher rates and people are using their cards more, but they're actually paying them back. That's the key. If there's a recession, if a lot of people lose their jobs, that's when the delinquency rate really spikes. We're not seeing that yet. So I think right now, A lot of people feel like maybe they're treading water or falling a little bit behind, but they are still paying their bills back, which is why credit card lenders are still issuing credit pretty freely.
2: Hmm. One congressional analysis released by Senate Republicans finds the typical American household needing to spend over $11,000 more just to maintain the same standard of living as they had in January of 2021. Does that explain why so many people feel under pressure, even as inflation comes down?
1: I think it does, because when you ask people how they feel about the economy, overwhelmingly, they say, not so good. And I think the biggest reason is that inflation is gobbling up any wage gains people are making. And I think that's really the perception issue. It actually makes me realize that, you know, honestly, people would rather have their wages going up, let's say, 3% if inflation was 2 then if your wages go up six percent and inflation is seven or eight or nine percent, and a lot of people feel like they're just kind of stuck on this treadmill and they're they're not getting ahead.
2: Is using credit cards more the only way that spending is continued to help keep the economy afloat? Is is it also, you know, people sapping their pandemic savings or is that long gone? I
1: think the savings are long gone at this point among lower and middle income households. I think there are still some excess savings among upper income households, but you could sort of quibble about is that even really savings at this point or is that more just net worth. It is true that economic inequality has grown. A lot of people are using on credit cards or using credit cards to get by. A lot of people are turning to buy now pay later. That's been a big trend this past week with Thanksgiving shopping. Different estimates have put buy now, pay later growth as high as about 50% year over year. And I think that sales pitch is resonating with people where maybe you make four interest free payments over six weeks, it spreads out your cash flow. I would caution that that's still debt. You could still get into trouble there. But some people view that as kind of the kinder, gentler version of a credit card.
2: And Um, I know the National Retail Federation was highlighting that, you know, over 200 million consumers spent money over the long holiday weekend. That's a record. But on average, it was a bit less per shopper. Right. So how worried should retailers be about that?
1: I think retailers are doing okay. It's certainly not going to be a blockbuster holiday season, but it's not a disaster either. I think they're having to bend on price. I think there's an acknowledgement that customers are feeling pretty frugal and that retailers have to offer discounts and they've done that early and often to move merchandise. People are being reluctant about spending, especially on physical goods. They're splurging more on trips and concert tickets and restaurant meals. There's still some of that pent up demand coming out of the pandemic. I think holiday retail sales will be okay. Not great, but not terrible.
2: How can people chip away at their debt? I mean, it's, it can be a very difficult thing to do, or at least it feels like it.
1: It can be, but the good news is there are some things you can do. My favorite tip is to get a 0% balance transfer credit card. These allow you to avoid interest for up to 21 months. So you take your existing high cost credit card debt, move it over to a new card like the Wells Fargo Reflect or City Simplicity. They don't charge interest on balance transfers for up to 21 months. So that could give you a huge runway for making progress. You typically need good to excellent credit, which most people have. But if you have a lower score or a lot of debt, maybe more than, say, $5,000, maybe then the best approach is to work with a reputable nonprofit credit counseling agency like Money Management International. And they can probably negotiate something like a 7% rate over four or five years They are especially useful if you have a lot of debt or a lower credit score or you just need a helping hand and you you don't feel comfortable doing it on your own.
2: Does it hurt your credit score to either take that step and work with agencies like that or to roll over your debt? And let's say once isn't enough and you need to roll it over again to another 0% card. How many of these things hit your credit score?
1: There is a little bit of a ding to your credit when you open a new credit card it's probably something like five or 10 points for a few months. It's minimal in the grand scheme of things. I think it's well worth it considering all the interest you could save. We're talking hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars, but you bring up a good point about you can't just kick the can down the road. You need to actually make progress. I could see maybe doing another balance transfer at the end of the term, if you've made progress. If you had $5,000 in debt and you paid it down to like 1,500 or something, and you just need a little more time, yeah, maybe you could do one more. I I don't want to be in the habit of balance transfer hopping. The credit counseling approach should also help your credit in the long run. Any sort of debt payoff strategy should help in the long run. A key here is that you are paying it all back. You're doing it at more favorable terms that have been approved by the issuer. I don't like the for-profit debt relief stuff, those pitches about get out of debt for pennies on the dollar. It sounds good, but that trashes your credit because they encourage you to stop paying and then they try to negotiate a settlement and it may not work, but even if it does, it really hurts your credit because of the the late payments and the the settling for less than you owe. So there is a a fine but important line between nonprofit credit counseling, which I like, and the for-profit debt relief stuff, which I would not recommend.
2: Right. So you want to take the right kind of action that's actually going to lead to paying off the debt and at the same time not having a delinquency you want to stay on that sort of positive track Um,
1: exactly mm -hmm. it takes some behavioral modifications too you could also take on a side hustle or sell stuff you don't need or cut your expenses it doesn't have to be forever but even if you just get really focused on it for six or 12 months you could probably make real progress a dollar saved is a dollar earned after all and credit card rates are much higher than other forms of debt
2: is Attacking credit card debt, is that sort of your your best tip for you know how people can help make ends meet in general, especially now that we are in the holiday season, which is added pressure for a lot of people.
1: It's very important. Savings is important too. So we recommend that people have a six month emergency savings cushion ideally, and that's your buffer against future credit card debt. the next time an unexpected expense arises. So I think it may make sense to do both systematically, maybe combining some of these strategies, setting money aside from every paycheck, but also pursuing debt relief through nonprofit credit counseling or a 0% balance transfer card. I think both are important, especially right now.
2: Ted Rossman, Senior Industry Analyst at Bankrate. Thank you very much for your time.
1: No problem. Thanks for having me.
4: And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers.
3: A Nebraska woman recently came home from a hunting trip with more than just a big buck. She got a marriage proposal, too. Samantha Kamenzine and her boyfriend, Cole Burris, had been dating for three years, and hunting is one of the interests they share. They process and eat the meat of what they kill. So in November, they were hunting south of Lincoln, and he gave her the first shot at a large deer. She bagged it, and Cole told her he wanted a professional photographer to take some pictures to commemorate the big moment. During the photo shoot, Cole got down on one knee and asked her to marry him, with the photographer, coming capturing the exact moment when she said yes. The Associated Press reports that the two are aiming at a possible wedding date next fall, but Samantha says it definitely won't be during hunting season. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News.
2: I'm Dana Perino. This week on Perino on Politics, I talk with my very good friend, Carl Rove, and we talk all things that you need to know to be the smartest person at the holiday party if anyone asks you about politics. Available now on Apple, Spotify, and foxnewspodcast.com.
4: Subscribe to this podcast at Foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Jason Chaffetz.
0: What's on your mind? James Comer, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, a committee that I used to chair when I was in the United States Congress, has requested that Hunter Biden appear before the committee to further their investigation into President Joe Biden. Most of this relates to his time as vice president rather than president, but does still spill into his time as president. In order to further the investigation, Chairman Comer is arguing that he needs to do a transcribed interview, which is markedly different than a public hearing. Abby Lowell, Hunter Biden's attorney, has said that Hunter Biden would be happy to participate, but it must be in the public setting. And thus, the two disagree about the format in which this is to happen. Now, perhaps I'm a little prejudiced, having been the former chairman of the House Oversight Committee, but the chairman gets to choose the venue, and the House of Representatives does their investigation. There is plenty of evidence. No doubt the Democrats will continue to argue that there's no evidence directly tied to Joe Biden. But there are text messages, emails, bank records, financial transactions, 20 LLCs, more than 170 suspicious activity reports, and testimony from former IRS employees charged with doing this investigation and others. While the tussle may continue about the choice of venue, ultimately, I think the right answer is to do both. James Comer should be able to do a transcribed interview as he sees fit, and Abby Lowell and Hunter Biden should get their wish and have a public hearing as well. One comes before the other, transcribed interview then a public hearing i'm jason chaffetz host of jason in the house a fox news podcast
4: you've been listening to the fox news rundown and now stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. listen ad-free on fox news podcasts plus on apple podcasts and prime members can listen to the show ad-free on amazon music and for up to the minute news go to foxnews.com